This is part one of a two-part series. Today we have formidable startup founder Peter Wong. He is the CEO of Anaconda, which now has more end users than World of Warcraft. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. What a great intro. Is that a true statement? Oh, it probably is. There's a yes. million users on Anaconda. That's I, when I shared that with somebody. Somebody said I didn't know that were, that there are that many nerds in the world. It is an interesting thing that we have seen. Uh, we are in a unique position to see it, right? Because we see all the downloads and everything. But we have actually more users, uh, more uniques than uh, World of Warcraft, MATLAB, SAS, Tableau, and Dropbox combined. Whoa. I mean, and you've been along for the ride, and I've been along for the ride very much in the Python world. Um, you know, actually, all three of us have something in common. I think, you, didn't you used to run the Python group in Austin? Oh, we, we, we did the group yes. hug at uh, PyCon Portland, remember? Of <laughs> local organizers. Well, there's a lot of hugging going on in Portland. But the uh, the you Don started the one in Seattle. I started the one in Chicago. And you started, I don't know if you started it, but you definitely were very involved with the one in Austin, weren't you, Peter? Yes, yes. I, I sort of started, I mean, I technically did not. There technically was a meetup before me, but it was just me and two other guys like getting beers. Um, but when he left, I took it over. So I basically did start it uh, in its current form. Um, but actually, just this year, I've just gotten too busy, and I've handed it off to a couple other folks who have so graciously and kindly uh, decided they would, they would step up and, and take over. And it's it's kind of running on its own a little bit. And you funded you uh, founded uh, NumFocus as well, right? You well, and Travis. T- technically, Travis founded NumFocus. Okay. I founded PyData. And then, okay. and we at Anaconda, we underwrote the first few PyData conferences and events, um, just out of our own corporate sort of coffers. Until we um, eventually, the thing was self-sustaining, and we handed it over to NumFocus. And now, the proceeds and the sponsorship for Num for PyData uh, conferences worldwide that constitutes a significant revenue stream for NumFocus and helps support all the open source software that you know everyone likes to use in the Python community. You you should have you should have had me launch it. Um, PyCascades was profitable for year one. You oh, have to, so now we're flexing on organizer skills. I, you know, yeah. uh, no, I'm just kidding. The uh, back when we first started, you know, it didn't. It started in a very interesting way. Um, I just thought, like, because the founding thesis for Anaconda, well, actually, it was Continuum Analytics at the time, right? The mm-hmm. founding thesis was, hey, you know, this Python stuff that we've been doing in the SciPy world, we think that's good enough for data analysis in businesses, and so we want to get more use of business, you know, more business use of Python. Um, mm-hmm. which seemed insane to a lot of people around us. I mean, I remember at the mm-hmm. first Strata conference I went to, people were like, really? You're starting a Python company? And um, so it was a big experiment. And and uh, Julie Steele um, and, and some others helped us pull this thing together, a little workshop in uh, at the Google headquarters uh, that was just like all of the the core nerd, you know, PyData nerd pool. We're teaching classes and we're just uh, talking to each other about what comes next. Um, and that was so successful that we then decided to go and run a conference. And and so- and what year was that around, Peter? That was uh, March of 2012. So okay. we early days. Early days. Oh my gosh, early we, days. We thought we were behind. We started in um, in January of 2012 as a company. By March, we had created PyData, created, um, uh, started the process for NumFocus, uh, had the first PyData workshop. Uh, by April, we created um, Numba and Bouquet. By summer, we created Anaconda. And by October of that year, we had uh, we had won a DARPA contract, the, the X Data contract, for like five million dollars. And we had um, then also we were putting on um, the first PyData conference conference proper in New York. Uh, 
And we also had the word, uh, had the beta release of our notebook cloud in the service or service in the cloud kind of thing called Wakari. So all that happened about 11 months. There's no doubt that this is snowballed and it's absolutely, you know, I see people and I did in my video series too, is, Hey, start off and download the Anaconda version of Python. But that's just become the norm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just what everyone does now. But where did it start, Peter, for you? Where did this journey go, go way back? Where did it go way start? back? Yeah, go go way as far as back as, as it matters. You know, where, where did your passion in Python and sciences uh, originate? Brian, Brian, shouldn't you cue some sentimental music? Oh, maybe yeah. A sonata? <laughs> where did it come from, Peter? <laughs> so imagine in 99, a disenchanted physics student decides to head into the world of software. Wait, the music stopped. Okay. Well, um, I, I you, you have a good voice, so it's it's fine. You can go with it. <laughs> so I, uh, I actually, I my, you know, my degrees in physics. Uh, my first gig in software was at a startup doing computer graphics stuff. I was one of these hardcore like performance C plus plus nerds for a while, and then I started realizing that I can implement algorithms things faster using this little thing I write on Slashdot uh, called Python. So I, I was using Python to basically drive backend stuff in C plus plus, and I realized that was pretty cool, um, and much more effective. So. Then I ended up working at Enthought. We moved down to Austin, my wife and I did. And um, I started working at Enthought and doing a lot of consulting around scientific Python um, all over the place. And it was by the end of the 2000s, the first decade, around 2010 timeframe, we realized that Python for data science, or it wasn't called data science at the time, I guess, in our circle, but it's Python for data analysis in general was a thing that was possible and um, was, in fact, a good thing to do. And so we started the company, uh, we started Continuum with the hope of, of pushing that, promoting that. Because I could see, it's one thing to say, like, to get a call and someone says, oh, we got some Fortran or some C++, we want you to implement this thing. We like Python, it's better than MATLAB. So we would do some work. And that was great. But then when I walked into Wall Street um, and so many hedge funds, so many floors of so many investment banks were just chock full of traders and quants sitting next to Python nerds using SciPy, uh, using, I guess, early forms of pandas and things like that at the time, NumPy record arrays, I realized there was a massive opportunity that we should take, uh, take Absolutely. on. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it that it became very relevant all of a sudden. And also, you lived through the progression of that moving from kind of a data analytics or data, you know, data analysis to what we call data scientists, and now even the term AI. Do any of these... Uh, it, states uh, this movement is uh, is it what you expected or is it you know and how do you feel about those change in terms and the change of the business climate between the beginning of a continuum and the transition to anaconda and now yeah this is a great question um for me there's uh, absolutely you know at a technical level there's absolutely a, a difference between what we might call just uh, simple data analysis um data science machine learning and AI. These terms are all, they have very precise meanings for me, um, which may be a little different mm-hmm. from yours and, and others, but um, but there's no doubt that while we're trying to tease out this evolution and growth of the scope of what we can do with the set of technologies that we call PyData or the Python tech, um, there's also been more and more people, maybe with slightly less clue, flooding into this space, right? Less technical knowledge. I shouldn't call it clue, but um, they can't necessarily see the difference between these things, but they have a lot of hopes and they have a ton of budget and a lot of, and then there's like hype makers in the space who want to actively confuse people, which is something I find quite unforgivable. So that, that all has been super interesting. And the thing that's been frustrating for me, I guess, a bit in this, watching this evolution is that 
um, as a technologist and so also as a practitioner of the stuff, I think there is a honest path for the technology trajectory and how this technology can be leveraged for human good and for the improvement of organizations, businesses, and mankind. And that path, you know, it's, it's sort of like the whole Samuel Jackson thing, you know, that good and true path is beset on all sides by people with um, bad ideas, people with no ideas, people with a lot of hype budget um, and, um, and all sorts of things. And so for me, there's an active struggle between good and evil in all of this, which is that those of us who care about the innovation space that created all this and that right. continues to create it, <laughs> there's an active struggle between good and evil, right? Um, and and what I like to do, because we do have such a brand, we have such exposure, so many users, I want to take an active role in that somehow to drive awareness of what these things mean um, and why we have to be thoughtful in our application of it. It's not just buy more tech, throw it to the same old business stuff, and boom, it's the same crap. You know, yet another crank of the or turn of the tech churn crank. Um, it's more than that. When, when does Anaconda publish a glossary of terms then? Because the nomenclature is important, as you've stated here, and uh, you are in the position to kind yeah, of define that. Yeah, when are you going to fix the problem? Yeah, I think that's that. <laughs> when are you going to fix the problem, Peter? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well. <laughs> You know, I think since I've taken uh, since I've taken the reins uh, just in the last couple of months, you know, there's a lot of house cleaning, a lot of other things we're trying to do to get, um, you know, things done as a business that we need to do. But um, from a broader guidance and vision perspective, um, that's definitely something we're thinking about. You know, how do we actually step up a little bit more in, in those exactly those um, ways? Now, we do have there's a lot of people in this, a lot of good books um, and a lot of these things. I think one of the challenges is that there are many people who don't even read the basic intro books on the stuff and they want to talk about it and get all aspirational about it. I mean, I was, uh, I, I don't know. It's very depressing for me as I see more of what mainstream tech actually looks like in business. Um, how, how much of it is people who have no idea what they're talking about trying to convince other people who have no idea what they're talking about, how to spend budgets that are just a total waste of dollars. Well, what um, about the roles? I mean, you mentioned before, I think at Anaconacon or somewhere like that, that data scientists, they don't fit into any specific classification. And there's a, there's a broad range of what that, those, that role entails. Can you speak a little bit about that and how it relates to answering that problem? Yeah, well, actually, um, I think that um, what I said there was um, that actually data science is a literacy, right? I did, I had one, one year, yeah. I said data scientists, they, they as a class, within organizations that are kind of new and they don't fit within the traditional silos of uh, IT or software development or data management um, or just like business, end user business analysts. They kind of fit in the middle. Um, and so they, they kind of, they touch everyone. Everyone's a stakeholder. Um, and also they don't have that much political clout. Um, so what my, my new sort of articulation around this is actually that um, as the adoption of data science has increased, as we have more people using Anaconda, you know, there's more Anaconda users by um, order of magnitude than there are Tableau users. And yet everyone thinks that Python is hard. And managers, just yesterday I was on the call with some potential investors. They're like, well, we think data science will really take off when it's made accessible to, you know, the people who can only point and click on stuff because Python's so like hard. Like AutoML. No, AutoML you, you've done awesome. that, though. You've done that. That was the whole point of the call with those investors. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I just, yeah, that's exactly right, is that this stuff is actually really broadly adopted. And, and here's the interesting thing, that broad adoption, I have to be very um, 
we have to be very careful in thinking about it. It's being adopted by people who are not going to become super Python devs, like ever, right? That's not the point of it. But they can learn just enough and they can apply these concepts. They can learn, they can apply Bayesian techniques. They can do this over big, messy data sets because the tools are there for them. And so my new articulation of this is that data science is not just a job. It's a literacy. And there's some people who are going to be data scientists, just like in the Mm -hmm. modern day. There are people whose job it is to be an author or to be a technical writer or to be a copywriter. And you also mentioned some things about... Uh, John Tooney, Atuki, I think you say, mm-hmm. um, and EDA. And like, can you mention a little bit about the exploration of science and how important it is? Or- yes, yes. And so the literacy, it's it's sort of like this, right? If you're, if you're enumerate, if you're not mathematically literate, then um, you can obviously tell the difference between like one lion coming at you and three lions coming at you, although neither is good. But you can tell the difference between, you know, a small pile of cash and a big pile of cash. Um, if you're enumerate, though, your ability to model and reason is limited because the whole reason you learn mathematics is to extend your cognitive reach. Same thing with writing. The reason we learn how to write things is because then we actually can externalize you know, we can do much more thinking. We can look over our previous thoughts very precisely from, you know, two years ago. And so um, with, with, if you give someone simply point and click tools to just kind of poke around and stuff, a lot of work has to be done to prep the data for them to be able to consume it in that form. And that data prep, it, it washes away so much of the interesting little details and interesting little things that could lead to really great questions Additionally, any kind of data prep work like that bakes in assumptions. And usually those assumptions are the same model assumptions that ultimately you have to validate on the other side of it. And so it's like, um, you know, if you go jogging through the woods at night and all you have is a flashlight. Well, if you don't have a flashlight, you're just going to run to trees and trip over rocks. If you have a flashlight, okay, that's great. You can at least see where you're going, but you can't see where you're not looking. So if there's wolves lurking in the, in the dark, you, you won't see them because you're not looking there, right? And the whole point of data science, the, where data science goes beyond data analysis, is data science is the application of broad spectrum kinds of techniques that can surface much deeper questions about models. So that's really, that's where that exploratory thing comes in. Is data science is like, you know, the, the wizard Gandalf holding up with staff and saying, you know, boom, and there's light everywhere. <clears throat> and you may see things you don't like to see. You may see things you don't want to see, but they're there whether you want to see them or not. And that's also the political challenge for data scientists is they come in and they really do their jobs right and they're empowered to do their jobs. They're going to seem like they're a bunch of a-holes who are just questioning everything about the business. Like, who are you, you know, two years out of grad school to come in here six months into the business and you're asking questions that this VP that's a god, you know, has been operating on for the last five years. The the business mindset versus data scientists. Well, I've got something right here is... Peter has brought up literacy and you've brought up illuminating kind of the current truth. And a constant theme we talk about also is how to get people to thinking predictive, because even people who are literate with statistics, they're not necessarily well suited to think predictive. And there's some cognitive issues with how we're wired biologically about that. And a pile on top of that, I, I typically say, I typically ask, you know, do people understand prediction, you know, and mm-hmm. what is your take on that, Peter? Do you think that the general populace understands the nature of prediction that lives under the umbrella of AI? Um, I think, unfortunately, prediction for most people is loaded with um, uh, a valence that is um, prognostication. Um, 
So uh, I'm, I'm going to get a little philosophical here. I think most people live in a world that is actually highly predictable. Um, mm -hmm. And we tend to see sure. most things as static and we like it. We like a sense of control and that things are static. And um, and so in, in the real world, most of the time, we don't have to think about prediction at all. The only places where people really run into prediction, the very few points of chaos they interface with is uh, the weather, um, the stock market, um, you know, uh, sports bets and things like that. And in fact, anytime, anytime people are betting is, you know, where the masses of people run into prediction. And the interesting thing about that is that by design, the big scale betting games, they're almost entirely random, right? Because if it was all the time, there's one team that just wins the Super Bowl every year. Well, heck, that's not that great. <laughs> you know, it's not, not many people are going to be um, interested in that. So um, the, the challenge is in business, in warfare, in other places where you're actually in, I think the, the military term is VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. When you're in a VUCA environment, then prediction actually matters and quantitative prediction matters. It's not just taking a swag and it's like, hey, I think we're going to do this and this will win. It's actually saying we have finite resources, we need to devote them in this way, and we have to be able to make a, a reasonable prediction. And so business is all this, really. Businesses that are not completely rent-seeking, they're doing this kind of thing all the time. They just do it poorly most of the time. Yeah. Um, so real prediction is not what the average layperson's concept of prediction looks like, some astrology report or some weather forecast that goes out a couple of days. Real prediction as a science actually comes in when you are in a world that is dynamic in a, way, a certain way, right? And so I think... Um, for me, when I talk about prediction there, um, like that's that's what it means for me. And in almost all cases, in order for those prediction, in order for that predictive activity or to do good prediction there, the prediction has to be connected to both action and sensation. Um, so if you're familiar with another uh, military term called OODA, sometimes pronounced OODA, so the OODA loop, or the, o the OODA loop, the OODA loop, is what it's called because you run a loop you observe you orient you decide and you act and so when you are in a volatile uncertain complex or ambiguous situation you need to explicitly intentionally run this loop and prediction is an integral part of it but prediction does not stand alone so i think is that this similar to human, a human in the loop that term that's become well yes yes and no in fact i would say uh yes and no in that it's good to think of it as a loop that's the first thing i guess maybe to really net out my answer it's important to think about prediction as one component of a loop. It is completely useless by itself in a business that cannot go and then act and then also measure the result of its actions in the environment. Um, then you shouldn't have hired those data scientists at all if you're not going to actually directly connect them to actions. But at the same time, or to business, business decisions, um, the same time when we talk about human in a loop, the reason why we want human in the loop in so many of these AI systems um, is because a lot of these machine learning systems, they're actually incredibly stupid. They're so incredibly dumb and stupid right now because the kind of data that we fit in, feed into them are very, uh, they, they have very limited context. So there's no way the ML or the AI systems can learn the context that the business person has. So that's why we want a, a human in the loop because they have all the additional context. Right now, our ML systems are extremely narrow band. They're extremely limited in what they can look at. And and Peter, to, so you, you're living in this world that is now you're you're a CEO. Um, you are a data scientist. You're a philosopher, evidently, <laughs> based off of that, at least. And still, you know, you're you're a programmer. Um, 
I don't want to belittle that uh, programming because I am a, I'm an engineer as well. So how much time do you spend with hands on keyboard anymore? I mean, do you ever hack on no, okay or anything? Or I mean, are you, I know you have a passion there still, right? But what is your, uh, kind of bring it down a level. What's your personal um, ability to even work on anything like that anymore? Yeah, um, I do spend, uh, I'd be honest, the, the last significant uh, Python software, whatever kind of little project I did, um, was to model out our cap table, <laughs> mm. uh, and so and like some term sheets, and so that was the. Uh, it's, it's it's funny and sad at the same time. Um, I do actually I I do a little bit of hacking on some things, um, but I just don't really have that much time. Uh, where I spend time hacking on stuff is actually my son. He's old enough now where he's doing a little programming. He's nine, and so um, he's start doing some scratch and doing a little Python. So I'm kind of doing some of that with him. But in terms of actually hacking on code and projects, um, the problem is I know I cannot have a sustained commitment to that. And I don't want to just swoop in, you know, sort of like albatross in on somebody's project, drop a bunch of code. Great. Now it's CEO founder code. And, you know, then it's stuck there. And like, you know, you just don't want to do that to people. Um, and in terms of my own projects, I just have so much going on in my life right now. I don't have time to sit down and bang out um, software projects. But I do look at a lot of stuff and I try to add value from a, you know, technical lead software designer perspective when I can. Um, and and so, yeah, that's that's kind of where it's at. You, you brought up the cap table modeling and we had a prior guest, Jim Nee, go over what he's exploring in fintech for, I, I think, really more retail banks. Now, a lot of your customers are financial firms. What, what are you seeing in the future of that with uh, Anaconda, data science, ML, and AI? In fintech, well, it's it's so broad. Um, I think there's kind of, there's many different layers in the finance um, stack of activity. Um, at the lowest levels, I think um, using these technologies for doing more accurate uh, risk modeling and essentially reducing the cost of risk modeling is something that I think can be transformative for the world. And so I have a, uh, one of my big hairy audacious goals is to do something like creating an open risk simulation system for the world, like a, like a wow. Wikipedia for mod Wikipedia, GitHub, but for models. Um, okay. I think that would be fantastic. Like if I won the lottery and I had like $50 million tomorrow, that's what I would go and build. Cause I think what that would do is it would dramatically reduce the cost of capital to um, risky endeavors that have good good outcomes in return. So I'm I'm a super like pro market sort of person. I know enough about fi about finance uh, at this point to understand the value of finance and equity financing, things like that, and having good capital yeah. markets. At the same time, I think we all recognize a tremendous stack of the financial activity that happens, and a lot of the a lot of the money that gets, that gets taken off the table, it's sort of games upon games, right? And um, you know, people do that. It's, I think it's uh, ultimately not that valuable for humanity. There's many better ways we can spend our time and, and our resources. But um, I think Python will unfortunately get used a lot there too, just because if you can out complexify somebody else's stuff, um, you know, then you can make a buck. Okay, great. Um, so there'll be some more of that as well. There's just no end of that kind of shell game stuff to be built um, as this technology gets more sophisticated. That's just well, there. with this uh, open risk modeling, is that like a hurricane walk score for somebody comp 
contemplating buying a house in a high risk area. <laughs> so um, they could. Yeah. Well, so it's, it's, it's more than that. I mean, it's yes and no. Um, hurricanes are a great example, right? We do have unified weather models um, to some extent they're messy, but um, the governments of many countries fund fantastic um, science research and computational infrastructure work um, on this kind of thing to simulate weather because that affects everybody. It's a great utility for everyone. But there's so many things on top of that that we can build um, to basically, you know, if I look at what actually happens inside hedge funds, a lot of times it's, you know, it's very similar to what I saw before the rise of pandas. Almost every single hedge fund on Wall Street that was using Python had their own crappy internal version of pandas. And they spent a bunch of resources fighting its technical debt, improving it here and there, kludging things together. Um, and so when pandas came out and AQR, somehow West got AQR and AQR had the foresight and the generosity to release that as open source software, it helped transform the industry because now everyone could be on the same stack. And more importantly, much more and deeper than this, that created an industry standard so that people people had more fluidity in the job market. They can move around and get a job where, you know, uh, you know, a different place, but also it allowed other things like scikit-learn, Dask, um, other things to build on top that could then, you know, they didn't have to get customized for every internal hedge funds version of this thing. So if you look at from a net utility to humanity perspective, pandas um, reduced the cost of developing everything else on top of pandas because all these firms could unify on the standard. Now, if you take that to risk modeling, a lot of what different hedge funds do, they consume the same sometimes, you know, a lot of times the same underlying data sets and they rebuild a lot of these same internal models and they're really marginally better than each other's. They're really not that different where they really have a position where they really have a perspective. Um, those things are a much less portion of the hedge funds time and effort than it should be. So, and that's just hedge funds. I mean, it's true for any kind of institutional trader, buy side, sell side anywhere. So in FinTech where this kind of thing can really help for insurance or everything else is it can dramatically help reduce the cost of insurance um, and dramatically help improve the efficacy of capital deployment. So anyway. Thank you for listening to part one. Next week, we'll have part two.